towards the end zone for Hopkins. Oh, baby. Watch what it. a grab. Steps, throws, end zone. Smith. He's in. Touchdown. Hello and happy Sunday. I'm Eli. And I'm Max. And this is Tackling the Texans, brought to you by the Pulse Podcast Network. Tick Splits is the official ticket provider of the Pulse Podcast Network. Have you been searching for the best ticket deals around? Well, look no further. With Tick Splits, the price you see is the price you pay. And Tick Splits just happens to have over $6 billion in ticket inventory just waiting for you. They absolutely mean it when they say every ticket, every venue, everywhere. And you can save even more with promo code PULSE in all caps to save you 5% off your total purchase. Just go to TixFlix.com and click the search bar. Search events based on your geographic location. Pick the show you want and BAM! It's showtime. Sporting events, Broadway shows, concerts and more with TixFlix.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the email newsletter so you can stay up to date on the latest news and savings with TixFlix. That's TixFlix.com. T-I-X-D-L-I-T-Z.com. Every ticket, every venue, everywhere. Once again, the promo code is P-U-L-S-E, all caps, that is PULSE. So, now to get into a little bit of what's happening around the NFL, Max. It's been some really interesting stuff over the last couple weeks, aside from all the uh, schoolwork that we've been doing. I think that really began with the Kareem Hunt signing a couple weeks ago to Cleveland now. We can get some of your initial reaction. I know that uh, listeners and NFL fans alike have been a little bit perplexed. Some people excited. Some people wondering what what happened in the situation. How did that end up working out? So the biggest thing is obviously Kareem Hunt is going to be on a small contract. He's going to face suspension for a lot of next year. And he's not too bad a fit on Cleveland. I think the thing that's confusing most people is what's going to end up happening with Duke Johnson. Since he's been drafted, he's flashed his potential as a good running back out of the backfield in terms of in terms of receiving the ball, but his role as a as a Cleveland Brown may not be there anymore with the two headed monster of Hunt and Chubb. Yeah, I I was even personally questioning it just from the perspective of you know having that Nick Chubb emergence last year. That was expected. It's not like it was unexpected or they don't see a, you know, a future potential for Nick Chubb because, I mean, they drafted him specifically as a very talented rookie who could come and produce day one, but also had huge potential for the future. So, I mean, I do really like the move, actually, when I've thought about it a little bit more. And even further than that, I actually think there's some big implications for the Texans and what they're going to be doing this offseason. There might be some good ideas of, of how they can handle their running back situation. And I only say that because the Browns have now emerged as a very comparable team with the Texans heading into the offseason. If you look at a lot of power rankings, if you look at different statistics, you really have the Texans and Browns ranked one after another interchangeably throughout most of what I've seen. For sure. And when you look at the offensive rosters and you see that Baker and Deshaun are two young quarterbacks, their styles are somewhat similar. They're not, they're not too dissimilar. They're, yeah, there's definitely similarities between the two. And you have Chubb, who was really good last year after Hugh Jackson got fired. And you have Lamar Miller, who ended up at the Pro Bowl. You have two 
decent backup running backs in Duke Johnson and Deontay Foreman. Uh, look at receiver, obviously, DeAndre Hopkins yeah. is quite a big step up from yeah. Jarvis Landry. We're, but we're looking at the running backs. There's nothing though, wrong so with Landry, but we'll the between the quarterbacks, the running backs, and the O-line, where really both O-lines struggled last year, and they're both looking for major upgrades this year through the draft and free agency. So that's where I really start seeing these parallels between what this kind of move can mean for the Texans going forward is, like you said, the O-lines were both actually quite poor last season. And in fact, from a run-blocking perspective, they really were inconsistent. And yet, both teams were able to have emergent running backs, Lamar Miller having his first good season in a number of years, as well as obviously Nick Chubb reaching uh, and probably exceeding some of what most people thought his potential would be in his first year. And then adding that Kareem Hunt piece there, I think offers an interesting question for the Texans when they're looking at maybe going after that Le'Veon signing. I mean, there's going to be somewhere around 77 mil in dead space. That is a lot of money to play around with. And I just think we briefly mentioned in a previous podcast, but Le'Veon is seeming like more and more of, an, of a feasible option. Beforehand, I looked at it and I said, we have Lamar. Lamar had a great year. And why would we want to slot in somebody like Le'Veon who needs uh, an advanced and intelligent O-line before actually having that in place? In fact, having quite the opposite in place. Look, here's the thing. We haven't seen Le'Veon Bell play behind anything but a superb O-line in Pittsburgh. And they did a great job of showing that running backs really are somewhat interchangeable with James Conner taking over this year and doing an amazing job and also ending up in the Pro Bowl. But here's the thing. The Texans have actually announced that Demarius Thomas has been cut. And it was already, we were talking about on our podcast, the possibility of signing Le'Veon Bell when we were in the 60s of millions rather than 77. And their contracts are pretty comparable, and it seems as though a signing of Le'Veon just brings us down to where we would have been before releasing Demarius Thomas. And yes, we need to re-sign some players in Kareem Jackson and Tyron Matthew and Jadavion Clowney possibly being tagged, but it definitely makes a lot of sense financially to bring in somebody like Le'Veon Bell. And in terms of the O-lines between Cleveland and the Texans, they have Austin Corbett, who wasn't able to play as a rookie. He they didn't think he was worthy of a spot on the O-line, and it's more or less the same with Martinez Rankin, who really struggled as a rookie, but another training camp, another year with the coaches, and I think both of them could actually make an impact on the O-line this year, and I know both of them are going to look to grow again in the draft this year. Cleveland has built up a ton of picks. The Texans have quite a few in the first two days. It, it is comparable, and I think Le'Veon should definitely be a serious consideration for the Texans. It is. It's um, going to be a really big decision for the Texans come the offseason. Uh, we are going to have to see if those O-linemen are going to come through the draft. Because, again, spending that money on Le'Veon is really putting an investment into the win-now mentality for the team. Meaning that they're probably going to have to back that up, not only with just relying on having those really high picks in the draft, we're going to have to be aggressive going after O-linemen in the free agency, which, which I wasn't expecting in any other scenario. I was expecting our draft to be very O-line heavy because, this is, because of the success that that's had in previous years for other teams. But I am seeing somewhat of a different direction that, that's emerging potentially for the Texans to take. And I would like that aspect 
of going after Le'Veon Bell, having that, uh, you know, having that dynamic pass catcher in the offense. I don't, you know, we'll go into it in a little bit of a later episode, what that would look like if hopefully these talks heat up, but I don't think I have to tell many people what Deshaun, Le'Veon, and DeAndre Hopkins would look like together in a backfield. Look, it's it's all speculation right now, of course, but hopefully the talks do heat up, and I could definitely see them becoming a, a very, very good trio. We've seen what they've been able to do with very little O-line. Add another threat in the backfield, add a couple of special O-linemen, and you could have a, a seriously talented offense that could finish in the top five in the league in, in points and yardage. It would be a huge positive for the Texans' offense. That's really not much of a question. Um, but there have been so many other things happening around the NFL, um, mainly the big storyline this week, especially, which, you know, NFL fans were kind of waiting for. We were waiting for this all to come out, for the volcano to explode. It, w- it was boiling over there. The AB situation in Pittsburgh. But what we're going to talk about is a little bit different. We will go over what's, what's happened in the last week and how it's all broken down. But I also really want to go over what this means for the wide receiver conversation in the NFL and more specifically what it means for DeAndre Hopkins and his place as the top wide receiver in the entire league. And look, it's been debated over the past few years. Antonio Brown had an insanely good season two years ago, but the offense, as much as we say that James Conner replaced Le'Veon Bell, it didn't exactly look the same and the Steelers missed the playoffs last year. And obviously... Things were boiling over in Pittsburgh, and I think it might be down to a two-man race now, more or less, between Hopkins and Julio. Well, honestly, I mean, if you're going to ask me, I'd still say that it's between Hopkins and Antonio. To me, Julio is just a step behind. A lot of that does come down to football, which I I honestly, we're going to break that down with a big Texans analyst that we're having on just a little further down the line. But we wanted to leave more of the football breakdown for DeAndre later. Um, this is more in terms of, I mean, there's a lot of people in the league who agree that, you know, it's really DeAndre and Antonio who you are arguing between when you're talking completely skill-wise. Watch them on the field. That's who you're deciding between. And I really want to go into why the intangibles, why what I've been saying for years is part of what makes DeAndre Hawkins great, has finally emerged and shown the entire league that DeAndre Hawkins is indisputably the best wide receiver in the NFL. Now, when you look at how this Antonio situation broke down, it it did kind of happen in a way that most of us expected. His call out of Big Ben, um, referring to him having an owner's mentality, saying that he can call out anybody, including coaches, but then saying that no one, including AB, could say anything back. Otherwise, they're, and this is a direct quote, their meal ticket gone. And that kind of thing is, I mean, it's, it's clearly Antonio airing his grievances, and I appreciate that. But clearly, with all of the lead up until now, we knew that he was going to be going after guys. We knew that some of it was going to be a little bit more, you know, passive aggressive. He wasn't going to go and attack everyone. And it's just this kind of, pettiness and self-involved aspect to all of his messaging that and and I don't have anything against Antonio Brown I love him I love I love his energy and charisma on the field it's just this aspect to teamwork to brotherhood on a team 
to loyalty to a team, to how you deal with your quarterback. It just rubs me the wrong way when I've seen Andre Johnson and DeAndre Hopkins do it the right way since the day that I became a Texans fan. And you see, for the most part, like when people request trades and people want out, they're more or less letting their agent deal with it. And they're more or less letting things play out the way they're supposed to be, where you pretty much go behind the scenes and and whatever happens, happens. And hopefully you start the next year on a new team. But we saw Antonio Brown make some really interesting decisions, posting a picture of him and Jerry Rice with AB in the 49ers jersey. And we saw him calling out Big Ben with an owner's mentality. And there was another tweet there about, about Rooney as the owner that just really didn't, didn't qualify as English sentences. But... <laughs> I know, I know what you're referring to. Again, just a completely out of control, uh, just a jab. That's all it is. It's, yeah, it's, just, it's just a dig in the wound. It, it seems at this point, like, when people make trade trade requests, sometimes there's a chance they can be on the same team at the start of the next year. Antonio Brown has ta- basically taken that opportunity away. He so can't be on the Steelers next year. The The chemistry just isn't there anymore. And it's going to be an interesting storyline for the rest of the offseason, really. But that's where the whole distinction between the two guys comes down to, right? Antonio Brown would never think of something like that when he's going through a situation. Everything that Antonio Brown has done through this process has been for Antonio Brown. DeAndre Hopkins, you would never hear that kind of complaining and that kind of Um, calling out done publicly because it just wouldn't represent him as a person or a player, which he's shown himself to be team first. He's shown himself to never be complaining. I mean, what really started this whole conversation in the offseason after all of this AB stuff really started happening was the Rob Kimball tweet, which stated, you know, DeAndre Hopkins played with Schaub, Mallett, Hoyer, Yates, Whedon, Osweiler, Savage, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he never said a word. The guy balled out every single year. Antonio Brown went through half a season with a little bit of QB turmoil, and he demands a trade. Rob Kimball signs the tweet off by saying, your best wide receiver in the NFL debate is settled. And I actually think that does pretty good justice to DeAndre's case, because that's something that I've been saying for years. It is not only underrated to have a wide receiver not complain about bad quarterback situations, but it is completely unheard of to see a guy putting up Pro Bowl historic numbers year after year with, excuse my reference, but trash bags of quarterbacks (laughs) when you look at the whole NFL. Like, I'm sorry, Max, but that was the case. And, And it's not only that he didn't complain. It's that he kept working harder to get better and make these guys look better. It's just a completely different attitude. And I, we, we don't even have to go in to why, you know, DeAndre's attitude in the context of an NFL team is more beneficial to the nth degree. It's not even a comparison. For sure. And the craziest part is you were talking about how he works with any quarterback and he's as good putting up Pro Bowl numbers no matter who he plays with. I remember there was a game against the Bengals. I don't remember who exactly came in, whether it was Yates or Whedon, but Hopkins had a slow start to the game. Either Yates or Whedon came in to replace him in the second half, and Hopkins ended up exploding in the second half, 
for what I believe was about 80 yards and two touchdowns, bringing them to a low scoring <laughs> win. And it's just crazy. Nobody else plays not only with bad quarterbacks, but with a complete quarterback carousel with just a different quarterback game after game and doing what he does. I think that is the kind of thing that has separated the argument for me because when you do look at the numbers now, I mean, <laughs> DeAndre Hopkins, 99.8% usage rate last year. The guy did not leave the field. He had zero drops. When Pro Football Focus ranked the top 20 players in the NFL, now I'm not talking about the top 20 wide receivers in the NFL. DeAndre Hopkins ranked number two. That's right, number two, ahead of Patrick Mahomes, and only behind Aaron Donald, who completely deserves to be in that spot. And honestly, I would not have argued if Mahomes was ahead of there as well. But I'm very happy that, uh, that DeAndre's in there at that number two spot. That is pretty exciting stuff. And again, that really does, for me, drive home the point. There is no dispute. I mean, if DeAndre, with his first serviceable quarterback that he's played with, and Deshaun is a lot more than serviceable, believe me. I think it's it, it ends the conversation when you see him putting up the best number of his of his career, the the best wide receiver numbers in the NFL, and then on top of that, all of the things that distinguish DeAndre from the rest of the top NFL receivers, especially the divas like AB, which me and Max just went over, and I think those kind of things really put this argument for the time being heading into the 2019 season. It puts it completely on a level that, in my opinion, is not arguable. And when the NFL Top 100 comes out, I've told everyone I know, I'll put my life savings that DeAndre Hopkins is the first wide receiver on that list voted by the players. Not a doubt in my mind. Yeah, and we've seen cornerbacks like Jalen Ramsey, who they go at it every game, and it seems like they hate each other. But we saw cornerbacks like Jalen Ramsey come out at the Pro Bowl and say that DeAndre Hopkins is just impossible to cover. And it's true. And you said that he played with his first serviceable quarterback in 2019, and he didn't even have the perfect circumstances. God, no. Will Fuller got hurt midway through the season. Demarius Thomas got hurt later in the season. He was playing with an injured QT and Vincent Smith and DeAndre Carter as his number two and number three receivers. Going into 2019, we'll see what happens with AB. We'll see where he ends up, who his quarterback is. But the whole thing is he's going to have a true number two. He's going to have a Watson that hopefully takes a leap, and it's going to be very hard to knock him out of that number one spot. I can't see it happening within a year. Look, if anyone can do it, it is A.B. I don't doubt that A.B. has the skill level to be the number one receiver in the NFL. I think that, you know, if anyone said that that wasn't a possibility, that they would be remiss, and they're probably not a great NFL fan. But... At the same time, I also think that it would be a short-sighted argument at this point to continue sleeping on DeAndre Hopkins. And in my opinion, sleeping on DeAndre Hopkins now looks like not calling him the number one receiver in the NFL, indisputably. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit off of our chest. We don't want to go nuts into the football aspect of why DeAndre is the best because we're going to be here for a few hours in that case. And we have an entire offseason here with you guys to go over this kind of thing. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, we wanted to take a little bit of time to thank all of you guys for tuning back in. Uh, we have we are really proud to announce that we've reached a thousand listens over our first three episodes. 
which is just a huge milestone, but really that's just attributed to you guys. We hope that you keep coming back throughout the off season. We're super excited to get this going and really just pick up a ton of momentum heading into what should be a really exciting 2019-2020 season. Uh, with that being said, though, I think that's a really good place to move into some of the uh, pro football focus ratings and just end of season observations on where some of the Texans ended up within the division relative to some other positions. So we spoke about DeAndre Hopkins being the number two in the entire league. And obviously that means he's the number one in the AFC South. One thing that surprised tons of people is the cornerback rankings within the AFC South. Mm. So we have Kareem Jackson at number one, even though that's a little skewed because he started the season playing at safety where he was unbelievable. Well, and that's really where he was able to give his amazing contributions in terms of numbers, run stopping, numbers wise, absolutely amazing. Absolutely. And that's why if we do re-sign him, I hope we pick up the cornerbacks to make him a full-time safety because th that's where he excels. That's where he make, should be playing. The money doesn't make sense otherwise. You yeah. have to make a decision. And, and the number two where I think a lot of the surprise came in was with Jonathan Joseph. Yeah. Uh, definitely a little bit surprising. Honestly, when you look at ratings throughout the season, it's not surprising as a Texans fan because you'll know that he had multiple individually spectacular games. Now, the issue is, and we've talked about this in the past, is that Jonathan Joseph has the ability to be a number one cornerback in so many different situations. And he shows that. The issue really comes when we're playing another team who has that one guy, whether it's somebody with Burning speed obviously has to have some skill that goes along with that as well. A Tyreek Hill, a T.Y. Hilton, or it's just a supremely talented guy. Jonathan Joseph, I, 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 look, we're speculating as to why a little bit, but he is older. It's, it's clear that he's probably lost a step. And in terms of those dynamic matchups, that's just where he falls short. You know, Max, fundamentally, yep. he's always right there. He's perfect. He has his limitations for sure. And that's the thing. He can be the number one cornerback on the Texans next year. We just need to pick up somebody who can complement him and help with the speed aspect of T.Y. Hilton and Tyreek Hill because we do have to play the Chiefs next year. And look, no matter who who tries to cover Julio when we play the Falcons next year, it's going to be the same problem. We're going to need tons of safety help. and. Maybe let him work against Sanu and just shut down that whole that whole side of the field and just have them go to Julio, who we hopefully double team with, maybe maybe the Honey Badger if we get him back. Or maybe Kareem Jackson if we bring him back or Justin Reed. But I agree. It definitely has not been the ideal scenario for J. Joe, but you know, the fact that he still has been able to accrue that those kind of rankings and obviously PFF. There's a lot of you know, intangibles that don't go into that, so we don't take that as fact and we don't give it ultimate credence or use it as a point of reference in all our conversations, but it is interesting to look at, and I think the fact that he showed up there at number two is really telling of the fact that he did have some amazing games last year, and Jonathan Joseph's career in the NFL is far from being done. For in sure. fact, he's still a really effective contributor. And that's important to make note of because it really is getting skewed in the media a lot when people make mention that the Texans need to draft a cornerback first round or if they go O-line in the first and in the second round. But the whole thing is it's about finding the fit. 
It's about finding the fit beside Jonathan Joseph because we don't need a number one cornerback day one. And back to a little bit of what we talked about before, uh, Lamar Miller did come in at uh, the number two running back in the division. Obviously, another pretty uh, big statistic there that is representative of Lamar's season, though. He obviously did have an impressive season. I think any Texans fan was happy, especially, like we said, considering the O-line situation there. But number two RB in the division in the AFC South, where no one was really getting going this year. Again, that lends itself a little bit to a Le'Veon Bell signing where we can really take over the division with a monster on the ground. I was about to make mention of the fact that Derrick Henry's the number one, and Derrick Henry's nothing special. That's the point. The, the, the running backs in the division really aren't anything special. Leonard Fournette has not lived up to expectation. You know, nothing wrong with being the number two, but he's definitely replaceable. If we're going to find somebody better, there's options out there. Yeah, and just to build on that even more, it's not just that there's an opportunity for better out there. It's that we have an opportunity to set ourselves apart from the rest of the division in a huge, huge way. For sure. And we spoke about running back grades, and we spoke about the possibility of picking up Bell, and a lot of next year's success with the running backs will fall on the O-line. And with that... We want to look at PFF AFC South's grade of centers. Oh, no. This is a pretty funny one. I was actually shocked when I found this out. I didn't kind of believe it at first. Because if you are a Texans fan, you will know about the offensive line. That if you ask anyone, you know, who's the most promising member of that offensive line? I don't think you're going to get any pushback from anyone, uh, for, you know, with saying Nick Martin. As, sure. as the center there. Davin, right? Davenport's the only young guy we have, other than Nick Martin, who's in his third season. And Davenport has struggled since the second he took a snap in the NFL. Rankin had a historically bad start. Martin has been the one guy that, going into the last offseason, Bill O'Brien said, we're replacing four players on this O-line. We're leaving Nick Martin. We're replacing both guards, both tackles. Nick Martin graded out as the fifth best center in the four-team division. Okay, I'm just going to reiterate that for everyone. So that is the that is the gem of the Texans' offensive line right now. That's the present. That's the future. That's the big name right now. And Nick Martin, Nick Martin ranked fifth for centers in a division with obviously four teams. Now, there's clearly a glaring issue there. As much as PFF can miss can miss some stats here and there look it's that's big it's just about the fact that there's nobody really off the table when we look at potential options on the o-line going into the draft or free agency it's not like last year when bill o'brien says we're replacing four people and leaving nick martin we had a little bit of a better o-line and nick martin didn't show that he deserves a spot on that o-line if we get to the second or third round and players like Chris Lindstrom or Eric McCoy are there. They, they need to be considered, even if they're stepping in at center, and that means Nick Martin has lost his role. It, that needs to be something that we consider. Yeah, and, and I, I, that's such a great point to build upon because I think Nick Martin has, in the eyes of the media and Texans fanhood, been kind of protected a little bit by myself. I'm completely, completely included in that faction because I myself have said, and it makes sense, you know, Nick Martin should be 
staying on the O-line shouldn't be a question because everything else is so awful that why would we look at – yeah, no, it's ridiculous it, it really to say. Is. It's but, awful. But, you know, we've then looked at Nick Martin and said, well, what's the point of looking there when everything else, you know, the house is on fire? But what, really, what it really shows is that this rebuild needs to happen now. It needs to happen swiftly, and it needs to happen quickly. We have a young QB who's learning to play in the pocket. This is, this is a major, major, major need. And when you look at other moves the Texans want to make, like a potential Le'Veon move, you know, improving that offense, taking it to a Super Bowl level, taking it to that next step, really turning the team into a contender, you do need to actually assess that O-line from top to bottom, and that actually includes Nick Martin more so than I thought before. For sure, and the Texans can go into a full retool, and it's about finding the right players. And with that, we spoke about players from the team last year and who we might be able to upgrade for next year. And here's a little stat I found on Reddit that's really interesting because it looks into the possible season outcome for the Texans next year. So it was posted by JP Analyst, and the stat reads that in the last 40 years in the NFL, 26 teams have had a year-over-year increase of 7-plus wins. These teams averaged a three and a half win decrease the next season, and only four teams have had the same or better record the next year. So that is going into the third year of this stat. Only four teams have had the same or better record. Yeah. So those teams include most recently the Rams from this year, who ended up in the Super Bowl. So it can be done. Yeah. But it's something to consider. That was, that was a huge free agency push by the Rams. Though. For sure. And a lot of that is about the fact that the schedule gets much harder as you finish better in your division, and the 7-plus win increase is huge. But it, it took the Jags last year. that a 7-plus win increase from 2016 to 2017 and just absolutely fell off this past season. And here's the thing. Four teams over the last four years – there's three teams going into next year. There's the Texans, there's the Browns, and there's the Bears. So I want to know who you think the outlier may be. If two, Let's say two teams are going to fall off. One team is going to stay even or get better. Ooh. Okay, so that's a loaded question. Now, I'm going to unfortunately give an answer that, well, it's not unfortunate for Texans fans who are listening, but... Unfortunately, it's going to seem a little bit biased, but I actually don't think that it is biased, and I'll tell you why. So I do think the Texans are the outlier in that group. Now, the reason really is, is when you look at the situations between two seasons ago and last season, I think that it's the same thing that happened back when the Texans went there 2-14 uh, and 14, uh, a number of years ago as well. It's a situation where we saw all of the important key players become injured or hindered throughout the season to a point where they weren't contributing. Um, and, and it got to a point where, you know, almost every star on the team was injured. And that was also at a point without the quarterback there. And Deshaun can't be understated the fact that, you know, he wasn't there for those last 12 games. So I just think that the team itself looked so vastly different between those two years 
that it's not really comparable with a lot of the progressions of other teams because that wasn't necessarily a flash-in-the-pan progression for the Texans. I believe that that progression could have even happened that year earlier had Deshaun stayed healthy, had JJ been there. So I don't know that that seven-game differential is necessarily accurate when you're looking at the Texans team from a historical perspective. And it's an interesting call to make because the Texans two seasons ago were just injured everywhere and had basically none of their starters playing, which is what caused the 4-12 and season. And that's basically what led to the seven-win increase. And then you have the Bears who picked up Khalil Mack, and they have a quarterback in Mitch Trubisky who's growing and getting better, and they have a GM who's very clearly trying to make strides to turn them into a powerhouse in the NFC North. And then on the other hand, you have the Browns, who that seven-win increase was from 0-16 to 7-8-1. and And here's the question. Does that Browns team look like a team that isn't going to go 500 next year? So I, I want to be able to say that all three teams have a serious chance at being an outlier in that stat. But it really is hard to make a call. If you have to pick one, I might, as, as much as this hurts, and it might fall to the Texans' schedule, which I'm going to read out in a second, but that Browns team just looks like a team that that really should not be worse than eight and eight. No, and I agree with that. And you're about to go over the schedule a little bit. But if anyone's even just brushed over the schedule for the Texans, you might have had to the, uh, go to the washroom and wipe up in the back because it's some pretty scary stuff. So we obviously have the Colts twice, the Jags twice, the Titans twice, as we always do in the division. Outside the division, we have the Broncos, the Chiefs, the Raiders. The Chargers, the Falcons, Panthers, Saints, Bucks, Ravens, Pats. Now, let's go over that again. We have the Ravens who made the playoffs, the Pats who won the Super Bowl, <laughs> the Saints who were a powerhouse and probably should have been in the Super Bowl, the Panthers who looked like a very good team until they fell apart, but we know they have it in them, the Falcons who were very injured, and that's probably the only reason they missed the playoffs because that, that roster is exceptional. We have the Chiefs, who look like one of the future powerhouses of the AFC. Already a powerhouse. And then we have the Colts, who look amazing twice. Yeah. It, it definitely looks as a possibility that we could absolutely make the playoffs, because the same way we talk about these teams, we would hope that they talk about us like that, with Watson and Hopkins and Watt, and we are a very good team, but... Staying the same or getting better, going eleven and five or twelve and four, I'm not saying it's not a possibility, but I think I would have to give the edge to the Browns finishing eight and eight as more likely than us finishing eleven and five. Okay, okay. And that's obviously going into free agency, where I, I hope with all my heart that Brian Gaines makes huge moves and and really restructures this Texans team to be just an absolute powerhouse moving forward. Which is very possible. It is. We pick up Le'Veon. We pick up a couple cornerbacks. Rankin hits. The first round pick on the O-line hits. And and it's a completely different team. I just want to stress also that, I mean, the Le'Veon talking, I mean, the option is out there. So it's obviously something that we're going to discuss. But, you know, that move doesn't have to be Le'Veon. That kind of move is signaling a mentality shift for the Texans organization. And I think... That's really the important part that me and Max are focusing on. A player like Le'Veon 
And those players just don't come around often in the free agency. So getting to talk about that specific situation has given us a lot of help in terms of um, being able to really articulate the importance of getting someone in like that and making a move like that for the organization. It's it's not necessarily the whole prospect of getting Le'Veon Bell. It's about the fact that we finally moved away from Rick Smith, where we can consider the possibility of picking up free agents that can truly make a difference to this Texans team. Rick Smith was a very good drafter. He he just did not pick up free agents. Like the, the most notable free agent pickup in his entire tenure with the Texans was picking up Brock Osweiler on $18 million a season. Big hit there. <laughs> well, moving on to something a little different, I want to fire up Eli with something we did on episode one. Oh, so this is definitely going to ruin a little bit of the vibe we have going on here. Just sitting on couches to do the nut, to do the Sunday podcast, trying to get this a little more laid back. But Max did inform me just before this that we're going to bring back the Get Heated segment just for a little bit for your entertainment. And that's basically just for any new listeners. That's where Max gives me a take from around the internet. It can be from Twitter, verified, unverified, a comment on Facebook, something that he knows is blatantly ridiculous, something that he knows is going to fire me up, but something that we also both know is going to do a good job in giving you guys some entertainment value. And I have never heard any of these before Max lists them. So Max, take it away. Go easy on me. So I would love to leave some suspense because there's five on the list, but considering it's the get heated segment, I just don't think it's going to work that way. So we could talk about first and maybe we can discuss some afterwards, but this is from Fox Sports NFL. And oh, verified, verified Fox Sports NFL, by no means just verified, a a massive media platform, right? So they tweet out. Apparently, these are the worst cities to live in if you are a pro football fan, with Houston rated as the number one city. Wait. You're telling Not me? on the list. Number one. Number one city on the list. Hold on. So you're telling me that Houston has been ranked the worst city to live in if you are a fan of a pro football team? Yes. Houston, number one. Okay. Oh. Oh. So let me just preface this by saying... I'm not even from Houston. And that is one of the most insulting, ridiculous, blasphemous comments I've heard in quite a long time. And I'll explain why Houston is not just a football city. And if they're talking about cities to live in to be a fan of a professional football team, you're talking about one of the most historic cities in the United States, it's not just a city that has an excess of culture and an excess of food and an, an entire breadth of things that you're able to do within the city. It's not only one of the greatest cities in America, but there is absolutely nothing unexciting about being a fan of the Houston Texans. And that is possibly the most insulting part of this entire ordeal. The team was established in 2002 and already has a beyond loyal fan base. I have connected, and and me and Max are fans here from Canada. I have connected with Texans fans from Brazil, from the UK, from Quebec, 
from France, and from all over the United States. So you don't tell me that the Houston Texans are the worst city to be in, to be a fan of professional sports. Are you absolutely ridiculous? You go talk to anyone who would be a potential owner or a candidate to own a team, and you maybe offer them up, I don't know, Tampa Bay, offer them up. Cleveland, you see how those reactions go, as opposed to saying you can start a franchise in Houston, Texas. Oh, and wait one second. That's not all. Because this Houston Texans team is primed for the future with what could be one of the best offenses that we've seen in a long time. We're seeing a potential for a historic duo between a wide receiver and a quarterback. You have, in my opinion, the second best defensive player who has ever touched a football field, still playing and doing amazing things within the community and bringing the community together. I honestly don't feel like I have to go on to this anymore because this is really getting me fired up. And I have to admit, Max, that is probably out of even the times we've tested this concept out, that has gotten me the most heated. I hope that Every listener shares my sentiment because everyone knows that's listening that that's completely ridiculous. The Texans fan base is is unbelievable considering that this team started only 17 years ago. And the team itself, if that is referring in any way to the current team, that's even more absurd. And I think Fox News should be absolutely embarrassed with themselves for posting that anywhere online. Now, I do need to ask you who the teams are that are directly after, now, because that's going to give me a little reference to possibly get even more mad. I just want to say, before I tell you the teams, it's so hard to argue that the city is the worst for any <laughs> pro football fan, considering that they literally just hosted a Super Bowl. Now, obviously, this year was in Atlanta, but they have recently hosted a Super Bowl, and they're talking about the city, the infrastructure around the stadium, you're talking about the culture, the food. It's just literally an impossible argument to make that Houston doesn't have the city for pro football fans. Now, two of the teams, you literally the only two teams you called out when talking about offering up owners' teams were Tampa and Cleveland. Cleveland is number four. Tampa is number five. Uh, now, who's in between? This is where it gets a little shady is – we know Indianapolis is an amazing city. I have been there to watch a Colts-Texans game there. It is a little bit surprisingly, to me, upscale. And it's a very nice city. Lucas Oil is an unbelievable stadium that happens to host all the Big Ten events also. Number two is Jacksonville. Number three is Nashville. Maybe some prejudice against the AFC South. I'm not sure. Okay. But hold on. Hold on. No, no, no. That... That just threw this this whole tweet into a whole new perspective. Clearly, they are executing this judgment on the entire division based on the level of competition that there's been, based on the level of rivalry that there is. And that's completely, what a ridiculous, ridiculous thing to do. When you have a division filled with the newest teams in the NFL, when you're looking at it from a division perspective, how can you then judge the division and fault the teams within it for not having developed rivalries that are, you know, that are historic enough? Because clearly that hasn't been there. There's been no opportunity. When you look, though, within the division, obviously there's been some a little bit, you know, there's been some issues with fans and attendance in places like Jacksonville. But but Jacksonville I would even is, understand. Jacksonville is second. But exactly. Houston has exactly. shown time after time. The fan base is here after so migrating is... from having 
their team stripped away to a division rival. The fan base is here after having to flop from the Oilers to the Texans, this away is, from the Titans. This is what they I could have gone understand. with them to the Titans, and oh. they're here as Texans fans. Well, I mean, it's not only that. There's never been calls in. The, there's never been arguments in the NFL. Who's buying? You know, the Texans. Where are the Texans going? Attendance issues for the Texans. Excuse me, but I've heard those issues come up for a multitude of other teams. So maybe the argument then could be, well, you know, Houston's just a worse city. But holy, that would be a brutal argument to start up when you're talking about Tampa Bay, Jacksonville, Cleveland. Cleveland as a city. Combine that with the team they've provided the NFL over years. Cleveland as a city in comparison to Houston. Never mind the team, which is also just not even a legit comparison to make. Look, clearly there's some discrimination going on against the AFC South. They're mad that Peyton Manning dominated for years. Then it was Matt Schaub. It's just cyclical. So I get it. Look, it's boring for the rest of the NFL when you look at it from a division perspective. But to put those three teams in the top three slots for unwatchable games, I mean, come on. That's absolutely ridiculous. You don't really think that if that was truly, truly, truly the case, that there would have been some talks about either rearranging part of the division, bringing in a new franchise. I mean, if these three teams are all struggling and they're playing each other all year, that's a huge issue that hasn't been identified by the NFL because it doesn't exist. And from a media platform like Fox Sports NFL, just, just absolutely crazy. Like, you would think that there has to be some form of accountability or validity to what they put out there. But... It just doesn't seem like there there was anybody looking over that tweet. If they tweeted right after saying they got hacked, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Honestly, I think the same thing. And this isn't like something that's going to appear as absurd to anybody that's not a Texans fan or a Houston native. Because I think you just look at that and you say, oh, okay, yeah, Texans, maybe not a great team. But when you really sit back and you think about it, The Houston Texans being put at the bottom of the totem pole. And remember, they're not even talking about the Houston Texans just purely as a franchise, which then we'd, you know, I would still disagree with very strongly, but we'd have an argument about. They decided to include the stipulation that Houston as a city to live in for football is the absolute worst. And from that perspective, I'm absolutely floored. It's ridiculous. So I think with that, um, I I definitely would love to hear from any of you guys who want to either DM us on Twitter at Tackling Texans. That would be amazing. Let us know what you think about that hot take, because I hope you share my sentiment. If not, open to having some great discussions as well. If any of you guys have any interesting questions that you want to give to the show, you want answered on the show, or just something that you've been wondering about, we'd be happy to get into a dialogue with you, discuss it a little further. Again, just shoot us a DM on Twitter. We'd be happy to look at it. And now that I'm a little bit more calmed down, I feel that we can conclude the podcast. I can say once again, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for the thousand listens. We're really just hoping that this is going to continue to take off. We've been so happy so far with everything we've heard back. We love to hear feedback from you guys, and we just hope that you guys are going to tune in next week. Thank you so much for listening.